On August 25th, 2021, at exactly 9 a.m., I attended my first college class. The name of the class was Political Questions, but now it's simply known as PPE 110, which stands for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. It is the introductory course for the political economy major or PPE major, which also happens to be my major. So it made sense that out of all the classes I attended that semester, that was the one class I was most excited for. We talked about different political systems and their relationship with all of the other economic systems and in an attempt to answer life's biggest philosophical questions. What is justice? What is equality? What does it mean to be equal and who's responsible for ensuring that equality among so many other things? So believing what I tell is that class surpassed all of my expectations. Obviously, you know, that was partly due to its content, but I'm 100% sure that it was also because of the man, the architect, the professor behind it all. He's been a professor at Rhodes College since 1994, but he's been teaching since 1984. He holds a PhD in government from Cornell University, and his dissertation was actually nominated for the prestigious Leo Strauss Prize of the American Political Science Association. He has published articles, essays, and co-authored the book, The Invention of the United States Senate with the professor and also his younger brother, Daniel Wirold, and is currently working in a book about politics, religion, Shakespeare, and Machiavelli. So without further ado, Professor Stephen Wirold, welcome to the Orthodox of Reason. Well, thank you for having me, Kelton. Uh, again, I was telling, I was telling Professor Wirold but before we started that, I've been, you know, in, I envisioned this for about six months now. And, uh, I, uh, and I always had him as my first guest. So again, thank you so much for accepting my invitation. Uh, it's wonderful to have you here, sir. So uh, I think for starters, right, before we, you know, we start talking about all these different abstract things that we always talk about, I want to know about, you know, Professor Wales. Stephen Wales, the man, before he became the professor. I remember uh, last year, around this time last year, you used to tell us that uh, you were, we were brought up in the family of five, I believe, five boys. Uh, four boys, one, one girl. Yeah, four boys and one girl. And you were a very naughty kid, right? And uh, <laughs> that was always hard to picture because I know you as, you know, as Professor Wales. So uh, why don't you walk us back? How, do you, how, do you, how did you go from being a naughty kid and then, you know, being Professor Stephen Wills, how was your background? How was growing up, uh, you know, in your day? Well, I mean, I grew up, I was sort of happy, you know, uh, too lucky to have a stable family. Um, again, there were five kids. Uh, that gives you a lot of companionship. And we were pretty strong companions when we were really young uh, and sort of as we split up as, you know, we went off to college or, you know, whatever, um, you know, those bonds loosened and then they tightened up again. Um, and we're very close now. Mm -hmm. that's, we're, all, that's we're all over the place. Uh, we have one in, Al one in Alaska, one in California, one in Montana. One in Memphis, Tennessee, and one yeah. in New York City. So that's that's we, great. Yeah, we visit through Zoom. Um, <laughs> you know, but you know, I was not. You said this. I mean, I was not a particularly good kid. Um, kind of 
juvenile delinquency, uh, I guess you would say. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I was sort of happy to be rebellious and it didn't matter what it was. Uh, it tended to be my father. Um, he said yes, I said no, um, and that's just the way we got along, uh, which wasn't all that well. You know, when I got into high school, I had a sort of focus for my rebellion, which is no longer against my father, but I had a kind of anti-authoritarian side to me, anti-authority side to me. And, you know, so now I had school principals to fight and things like that. Um, you know, college was Kenyan. I love Kenyan. Um, mm. You know, I was kind of mixed up, but it was a good education. Uh, probably is the reason I'm here now in mm. the sense that when I went to graduate school, you know, I knew that if I came out and decided to be, you know, a professor, that I would want to teach at a place like Kenya, a small mm. place. And I feel extremely grateful. I feel like my whole professional life has been lucky. Um, and so let me thank uh, Professor Dan Cullen for bringing me here. And He's my advisor. Actually. Yeah. yeah, you know, then, you know, it's a great place to be. And obviously I wanted to stay and have stayed. Um, you know, I would, you know, when you, I don't know how far you want me to go with this, but. No, 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 no. I think, I think I want to backtrack for a little bit here because sure. you said that, you know, you were sort of happy for, you know, for being a rebellious kid. So like what exactly triggered that? Like, was it anything about growing up in a you know you know you know in a large family that maybe you wanted to to stand out and maybe the best way to do that was you know by being rebellious or like what exactly triggered your you know that you know that disposition from you? I, I don't have an explanation. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe, um, you know, I was the middle child and everyone says the middle child has problems. So maybe that's it. Yeah. Uh, but it was pretty ingrained, you know, starting obviously, you know, more closer to adolescence than before that. But yeah, it just, it was the way I was and, mm -hmm. you know, and it's changed. I, I mean, I still am to some degree, but it's you, the you think so? The focus has changed. Yeah. Okay. It changed really in graduate school, um, where, you know, I felt there were some pretty, I can't go into details, part, mm -hmm. partly because it would take the entire hour to explain everything. <laughs> okay. But it's where I kind of faced, um, what would you call it, sort of righteous, ideological righteousness that was harming people. Hmm. Um, and, you know, what I thought were sort of unscrupulous people and, you know, so it wasn't a rebellion exactly against authority any longer. It was a rebellion against, you know, people who harm good people. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And, and it required, I'm not patting myself on the back seriously, um, but it, it taught me sort of more about what I would call moral courage. Because, um, okay. you know, by the time I left graduate school, there weren't many people talking to me any longer. 
um, you know, because, you know, I fought what they were trying to do and they were so rigid about it that anyone who, you know, raised problems, whatever, questioned things, um, supported what they thought was the wrong side, uh, you know, they thought I was bad and therefore worthy of being sort of shunned and, you know, Again, I don't want to exaggerate. Yeah, I see what you're saying. It takes a lot to not have people talk to you. Well, in well, your- and if you if you say that, you know, by the time you left graduate school, you pretty much said you didn't have anybody talking to you. So I'm assuming you were kind of by yourself on your stances. There so were, it, it, yeah, if, were, if, if that's the case, sorry to interrupt you, but if but if that's the case, how did you like what sort of asserted your views if you were, you know, by yourself? Because I know it's easier to, uh, I, I know you talk about moral courage, courage, right? But I know it's easier to uh, to stand uh, for what you believe in if you have other people around you to do the same. But if you were by yourself, like who were you seeing, who were you seeing back then that was doing what you were doing? Like where did that, you know, that moral courage sort of emerge from? Well, I don't know. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I just, I guess I just thought that someone was being terribly treated, that these people surrounding me, my fellow graduate students, um, were either, you know, sort of vicious um, in you know, what they were trying to do and their how they treated other people. And other people were quiet, who wouldn't defend, you know, the people who were being harmed. Um, I wasn't alone. There were a couple other people, but, um, you know, actually coming out and fighting and saying the things that I thought needed to be said is going to put me front and center. Um, but, you know, I guess it's not easy, but there's a kind of good feeling in the confidence you have you know, not in being right, but in opposing those who are doing what was to me clearly wrong. Mm. Um, And, you know, I just learned something about myself through that. And it sort of gets at what you were asking, Kelton, and that is that I can do just fine by myself. Mm. You know, Mm. I can, you know, I like friends. I'm, (laughs) I'm I'm a shy person, but not, you know, I, I, I'm still social, uh, mm-hmm. but if the circumstances require it, you just put up with it. But I did have, there was one professor who was very supportive and mm-hmm. that made a big difference. Just someone's office I could go to and we could, you know, talk things through or not talk about them at all and just, mm-hmm. you know, talk about Emmanuel Kant or something like that. <laughs> was he your professor Wills in a way? Well, I well, I don't know, Kelly. <laughs> uh, but um, I mean, in a way, yeah. I mean, he was yes, he was very important to me. Um, you know, both because he was probably on the top three smartest people I know, which wow. was always awesome humbling to be with him all week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he was pretty good at reminding you of 
that you should be humble. Um, <laughs> so, but he was, you know, it just it was just someone to talk to, took things seriously, both that were going on at the university and um, things that were, you know, important that we wanted needed to talk about. So that helped. So um, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry to cut you, sir. Uh, I just uh, I thought it just came to mind that it's funny that you. Uh, that you just said that it was important for you to stand for what you believe in. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but uh, I don't know if you remember, but our first class was actually, uh, we had to watch the video from Charles Murray from his, uh, well, from his, you know, unsuccessful like, attempt to uh, deliver a speech, you know, a, a keynote speech at Mil Middlebury, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. So, uh, and that was actually our first class. So was that, you know, were you trying to set the tone for how you wanted our class to look like? Uh, like, what was the, because, you know, we never actually talked about that ever again, but it was just that, that first class, that that's what we talked about. So no, I'm trying to relate to what you just said. Was there, was it, you know, was, what was the rationale? What was the idea behind that? Well, I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's complicated, um, <laughs> you know, but it, it does, it sort of was a, quick way to get to, you know, how I teach my courses, which is not unrelated to what we were just talking about, because one of, you know, a couple of the things I came away with from Cornell is a, non, a kind of clear understanding of how complicated things were. I mean, when I was at Cornell, I was liberal left. That whole experience changed me. Um, because I became very skeptical of human nature. Mm. Humans, humans can be just such beautiful creatures. Mm -hmm. They can love each other. They can care for each other. They can sacrifice for each other. Mm -hmm. But we can also be terrible creatures, uh, selfish, vicious. And, you know, in a sense, I thought, you know, that my kind of liberal left views sort of rested on the idea, a kind of idealism about human beings. And that went away because uh, mm. I saw people who I thought I agreed with, people on the liberal left, who were horrid. You know, so I, I kind of came to the conclusion that, well, people and things are more complicated. Um, and that, you know, in some ways this is wandering back to, as you know, it takes me sometimes a while to get back to the yeah. question itself. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's kind of how I teach my courses is that things are complicated. You know, mm -hmm. that what I, and, you know, the Charles Murray is a good example. I mean, he, obviously he's written things, many things that are controversial, but our task is to face them and, inquire, argue with, but you can't argue with something that you don't listen to. And mm. start shutting things out, then you lose. Uh, so does everybody else. I mean, that was the sort of great shame of that whole fiasco was that people who wanted to hear him, whether they agreed with him or not, couldn't. And, yeah. you know, that means someone Many, possibly many people were deprived of something that could have advanced their understanding of the world, even if that came from 
you know, arguing with Charles Murray, learning more things about him and by him that, you know, clarified one's views that he's wrong about something, that's a benefit. Um, so, yes, that that is, you know, sort of what I want to do in that course and in all my courses is to sort of present the complexity of things. How, why it's very, very hard to have a clear, unqualified view of social, political, moral questions. Yeah. Um, they're just complicated. And yeah. so my aim, you know, as a teacher is to make them, present them in their complications. And I know that annoys everybody at some point. Uh, that's my aim, at least. <laughs> I will someone, everyone, I want everyone in the class, unless they're just, you know, completely not thinking and I haven't had one of those students. So that people will be disturbed by something because it upsets their way of looking at the world. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I've sort of come to be happier with the complexity, given up, not given up trying to find answers, but giving up, given up being frustrated by not finding them. Maybe two months or so after that Charles Murray lecture, the one we had in class, we had a, you know, an incident, if I may put it that way, with Peter Singer, the philosopher. Uh, he was scheduled to, uh, to, uh, to give a talk, I think, about the ethics the ethics of pandemics, of pandemics, something like that, something related about pandemics, right? Um, and as soon as the news went out that, hey, Rose College under the philosophy department is hosting Peter Singer, everybody just went wild, right? I wasn't even aware of who Peter Singer was. I didn't know what, what his views were. And I think, I wanna say I'm almost sure that most of the people were complaining about him were not aware of his views as well. Because I had conversations with, with friends of mine. And you know, I remember my roommate asking me why wasn't I angry about the situation? And I quite quite frankly I told him, I don't know this guy, right? And if I knew him, I think this would be an opportunity to know what it is about. And if I don't agree with him, that's also an opportunity to, you know, to go against him and just go back and forth because I believe that this is what universities are for. So you've been, and you've been in academia for almost 40 years now. How did you assess the entire situation? Were you surprised by it or, you know, not at all? Okay, would you like to say more about that? Well, it just happens so often now. It's, yeah. it's distressing. Um, but the parallel between Singer and Murray is, is, is perfect in the sense that, um, you know, Murray was coming to talk about his recent research, which was on chronic poverty. Um, it was studying, you know, he wanted to get rid of it, make a point and got, get rid of sort of the race and ethnic. So he just studied, well, we talked about this in class. He studied, you know, white people and rich and poor. And he came to some very interesting conclusions about poverty and what the causes are. And um, that's what he wanted to talk about. Not his old, you know, 
earlier ideas that came from a book called The Bell Curve that was about the genetic basis of, of intelligence. Um, so they were protesting something he wasn't going to talk about. Um, so they were shielding people, not, you know, from the idea they thought, you know, they wanted to. Same with Singer. He was coming to talk about, you know, sort of COVID and how do you deal with an epidemic and mm -hmm. what are the kind of moral considerations. Um, not his stuff on, you know, which had to do with with people. Infanticide. Part, yeah. Well, I yeah. mean, people, the subject matter is people born with defects of some sort, you know, psychological, physical. Um, and how do we deal with that? And, you know, what, you know, Singer's a utilitarian. I'm not, but he is. I disagree with a lot of things he says. I think, you know, humans have a kind of innate dignity. He does, he deals, it, 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 it's not that he doesn't, but his utilitarianism is based on pain, reducing suffering. And so all of his arguments about giving your money away, which he was very, he's very much for, is about suffering, relieving suffering in the world. So his whole argument about, um, you know, that led to the sort of infanticide charges is about reducing suffering. It's not, it doesn't arise from some kind of indifference or cruelty. It arises from a great sensitivity. That's why he's a vegetarian. He may be a vegan. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, he, he is a vegan still. He is. Yeah, I mean, he just doesn't like the way we treat animals because he sees them as sentient beings. They have at least pain, um, and that we cause pain by the way we raise them and slaughter them, etc. So, yeah, I know, but I'm not surprised. I mean, this sort of things happen on most college campuses now as people get kind of whipped up about something and they don't necessarily read, but they certainly then don't listen. And I think that's that's a problem. What do you think is causing that, sir? Because I ask myself that all the time. Well, boy, Kelton, if I could answer that definitively, I would be a rich person. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's sort of, you know, I think there's been a kind of shift in academic life from a sort of sense of scholarly responsibility and therefore a certain degree of humility that goes with that. Mm. It's difficult to know enough, whatever your subject matter is. Um, and there are still many, many people here and elsewhere who embrace that as a principle that they seek to understand and they understand that they don't understand it. Exactly. This goes from biologists through English professors, political science professors. So it, you know, it's not a disease that you know infects the entire college or could be a university. But there does seem to be less humility and more certainty about the sort of validity of feelings. And mm -hmm. that, you know, it's 
and again, I don't, I can't really explain in any way that would even convince me um, the origin of that, but that's certainly what the surface is. The surface is that being offended is a feeling mm -hmm. and it's sufficient to, to sort of validate my position that X shouldn't be around, you know, that it's more, you know, which is sort of, it seems to me very contrary to the purpose of a college university where reason and evidence should dominate. And it's come more to kind of feelings and being offended, uh, being hurt now becomes sort of the Trump card that not mm. Donald yeah. Trump. And you know, it sort of wins out over any kind of rational discourse, any kind of evidence that it doesn't really matter whether there's a good reason to be offended. Um, it doesn't really matter that being offended is probably the easiest thing for human beings to do. We are so good at it. Yeah. Any human being who inspects his life just that much will find that he or she has exaggerated some harm way beyond what it mm -hmm. really is. So we're really good at it. And it's, you know, it seems to me precisely our, the job of a college and university to ask students to set that aside. Mm -hmm. Not to be without feelings, but to set it aside in the sense like an awareness that what I feel or think at the moment may be very, very far from what makes most sense when we look at what's relevant to it. You know, that, mm -hmm. so there's a, you know, the, again, go back to that word, which I like very much in an in a academic context is humility, you know, that, I can know more than other people, but I am still humble before my complete knowledge of what I, that I don't know a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, I can be confident in certain matters, but I can't be confident that I have the whole or even a large portion of the truth. Mm -hmm. That's why I said, I mean, I'm, I teach with the idea of complexity in mind, not answers. Mm -hmm. um, let's look at all the different answers and we'll see that they're not compatible. Uh, now, how do we sort that out? Do you think there's, do you think there's always a right answer to these things? I understand the importance of, you know, exposing people to different ideas, right? Especially when it comes to complex issues like the ones we talked about in, we talked about in class. But do you think there's, you know, there's always a right answer to the things to talk about, or at least uh, an answer there's brighter than others in a way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, to the answer to your first question is, um, I would like to believe there are right answers. Mm -hmm. I, I read and think as if there is that final goal. Am I there? No. Um, do I expect to get there on the big questions? You know, God, justice, you know, <laughs> nah, I'm not going to get there. But, but 
there are writer answers. Yes, there are ones that comport more with the evidence, you know, so whether the evidence is factual evidence, experimental evidence, you know, obviously scientists arrive at pretty definitive conclusions, but most scientists I know also think, well, maybe the next experiment will show something different or the next batch of data will show something different. Um, but I do think that, you know, there are, one can reason one's way to more thorough answers, ones that comport most with what we can see in the world around us. So, you know, so yes, I think, you know, over the years I've made progress toward what you call writer answers. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I mean, there are better and worse ones. They're ones that fall apart upon examination. And then, you know, you move on to something, what you've learned from that, and then hopefully incorporate more and more complexity until you have, and in each step, greater confidence that you must be closer, mm -hmm. you know, because you, you have not dismissed things, but rather brought them in. Now, okay, yeah, yeah, more things, more understanding of human beings, et cetera, which is, you know, the focus of most of my work is trying to understand human beings, which, what a mess. Uh, yeah, what a mess, <laughs> what a mess, for sure. <laughs> Your answer kind of reminds me of the allegory of the cave. I'm not, I'm not sure if, you know, if this is a good comparison, because, you know, and you also talked about how the more you try to reason your way through life, the more lonely you became. And I think it's a good, uh, when you look at, you know, the allegory of the cave sort of represents that uh, in so many ways. And actually, I kind of view the way you structured your class, you know, as the allegory of the cave in a way, as we, the students, are the ones who are, uh, you know, in the cave and you, as the, the one who was able to finally <laughs> break free. And uh, you, you were sort of going back and forth with us uh, when it comes to all these, all these different issues. Would you say that, you know, with, with having that image of the allegory in mind, would you say that you have been, more often than not, to have been successful at trying to guide us uh, you know, to the light, you know, trying to show us that the things we're seeing are just mere, uh, you know, projections and the real things, right? For, for you to be able to actually see the real things, there's more work to be done. Would you say that you've been successful in that throughout the years? I'm not the person to ask. Uh, <laughs> my students are. <laughs> or, or, or maybe let, let, me, let, me, let me put it this way. How would you measure the success of guiding your students? Maybe that's a better question. How would you measure that success? I mean, I would say that in most classes, um, one does see progress in the sense of greater awareness of the larger world, that okay. there are a lot more out there in the social, political, and moral world than they have taken into consideration before. And that 
sort of by you see this where you know the daily writings, Kelvin, but you see this in the daily writings is that they just get more and more complicated with a lot of students because they're they've incorporated more subtle understandings of things. So I mean, we can go to the cave. I'm nowhere near out of the cave. Um, I do want, you know, my aim is to turn heads around, you know, like play the talk and maybe take a couple steps. I can't expect to do more than that. Um, but also, I'm not sure. I know this will sound bad, but <laughs> I'm not sure where I'm leading, you know. That's, you know, that's my kind of hesitation about teaching certain things um, is I don't, I haven't been out of the cave, honestly, given my sort of philosophical bent, I'm not sure there is a sun out there in the platonic sense, a final metaphysical truth of things. I'm not, I'm not so sure that's the right account of, of, of what we know and how we know it. Um, but so, you know, it's, there's a kind of high responsibility to teaching because you need to be aware that you have an influence on people and you have to be aware that that influence could go badly um, if you kind of turn somebody's head around but don't give them anything to kind of stand on. Mm -hmm. um, I worry about that all the time, but uh, you know that that so you know I want to open people's eyes, but I do not want to destroy things that are important to them. I want them to think about them, but my aim is not to undermine things that are important to people. So. I want them to think about them, think about them really hard. Mm. Maybe see that there are problems with their views, hopefully see their problems. Mm -hmm. But you know, if I can't be there at the end of the line, you know, to support them when, you know, their whole belief system has collapsed, um, then I have a responsibility to be careful about that, to okay. be careful, you know. So that's why. So many of my courses are sort of on the one hand on the other hand. Mm. Now, so on the one hand, might affirm some people. On the other hand, might trouble them, but affirm other people. But that if they have both have to see both, you know, mm. and, and you know, I don't want to. I do want people to come away to go back to an earlier question you asked. I do want people to come away with a kind of humility about their understanding of things that maybe maybe I don't know everything or have everything. But I don't want to my aim is not to destroy, you know, people's view of the world. You know? So because I can't pick I can't pick up the pieces if I do that. I won't be around to do that. Mm -hmm. It's a serious responsibility. Would you say was there anything that was once very important to you? any view that was once very important to you that along the way, you know, in your quest for you know, a greater understanding of the world and human beings that got destroyed? 
Well, Kelton, I was a Marxist, so. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Say no more. <laughs> Say no more. Then. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Um, and I'll give you a couple. One of them is sort of personal, but and I'll only wade into that so far. But, but yeah, I was very left wing. I'm sort of a Marxist. I was a stupid one. I didn't really understand Marx that well. But, um, uh, and, you know, it was pretty clear to me after a while, both giving up on this kind of idealistic understanding of human beings that they can all of a sudden be perfectly good people. That's an exaggeration, but, um, but also just, you know, it's grotesque failures and, you know, in where supposedly there was communism and the obvious fact that that in the most advanced industrial nations, which should have been the ones that had communist revolutions, they haven't had communist revolutions. Uh, they built middle classes, which is entirely contrary to Marx. So I just feel like, you know, that side, the kind of economic side of Marx, I gave up on. Um, but I mean, you know, I could have a you know, I can have a kind of dumpster in my office of all the things I've eventually abandoned. Um, uh, but, you know, and a lot of that has to do with something, you know, we went back, you know, talked about earlier, and that is kind of a skepticism about human beings and, you know, sort of not getting rid of ideals. I would like life to be better, but I am very skeptical of any plan that rests on making people better um free people you know they will be complicated and they will have you know selfishness they will be all sorts of things um so there's a limited degree to which you can make society and politics good and one of the things I've learned from reading history is that when people try to make society perfect and good, many people die. And that's something that's, you know, helped change my mind about various things. So. I want to I wanna poke you a little bit more on this one, because you're, you said that as much as you want to guide people uh, towards, you know, having a greater understanding of the world, you also do not want to destroy things that are very, very dear to them, right? So let's assume that you have a student, right, who is also a Marxist, right? And your belief is that, uh, well, first of all, back in your days when you considered yourself a Marxist, you didn't really understand what Marxism was all about. So, and once you actually understood what it was about, you realize how you know, in your view, it was very harmful to people, right? So if you have a student that is a diehard Marxist, right? Why wouldn't you go out of your way? I'm not saying to impose your view, right? But to try to make it more um, salient, I may say, maybe that's the best word, salient in that person's mind that maybe this is not the best way to look at the world. Right, instead of just you know shying away from quote unquote destroying your worldview. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't. It's you know, it's I don't wouldn't consider someone who's a Marxist. You know, I wouldn't consider that to be something sort of deeply personal. Those are the one things that I worry about that I'm going to 
you know, get to something, you know, sort of that's kind of part of their being. Um, but no, I would think that's my job. It would be to sort of point out the complications with Marxist un understanding of, of human nature. He doesn't, at least in one version of Marx, he doesn't think there's a human nature. Mm -hmm. That would be part of the argument. You know, haven't we seen the same characteristics in human beings, you know, throughout the ages? Um, and, you know, and, you know, the other thing I would point out, which I do point out, um, is that, you know, his understanding of the trajectory of capitalism seems to have been very wrong. Um, it, there's no economic system in the history of the world based on the data I've looked at that has done more to relieve human misery than free market capitalism. I mean, and those are the kind of things we start pointing out. Person still may be a Marxist, but hopefully a more thoughtful one, maybe mm -hmm. realizing, well, it isn't so simple. Capitalism bad, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, you know, my students talk about this. Oh, capitalism is based on greed. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not. It's based on selfishness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Those aren't the same thing. Uh, you know, every one of them and every person wants to make his or her life more comfortable, better. You know, that's mm -hmm. selfish. You know, doesn't mean you step on people. It doesn't mean. It just means you want your life, your family, your kids to have a better life, a good mm -hmm. life. Um, you know, and so you can, you get rid of the client as much as possible, the, you know, the sort of good evil, simply good evil. Things mm -hmm. are all really more complicated. So, you know, whether I could, you know, change somebody's mind and give them, you know, get them to sort of give up Marxism. It's not really my aim, but I would like to plant seeds of doubt. And mm -hmm. there's plenty of reason for that doubt. Mm -hmm. um, so I would, you know, and I would convey that as these are the things I saw that changed my mind. Um, but, you know, they're more personal things that, you know, that I worry about touching on in a way that I can't, you know, that undermine in a way that I can't fix, you know, which it's a problem. Like, I'm, God. I'm glad you actually made the distinction between selfishness and greed, because oftentimes people tend to equate these two concepts the same way they equate inequality with injustice, right? Just because something is unequal, that doesn't necessarily mean that is unjust or, un or like unfair. And I think that's, uh, you know, off more often than not, that's how most people look at capitalism or look at the world in general. Oh, you know, there's inequality. There are people who are obviously smarter than others, more talented than others. And when you add all those filters into the, the job market, the, you know, the, you realize that some people end up making more money than others, right? And that creates, uh, you know, an inequality. But just because that exists doesn't necessarily mean that that hierarchy is based on, you know, injustice or some sort of oppression, right? Uh, how do you, 
you know, how do you try to explain that to college students? Because I think I see that line of thought uh, more predominance amongst college students, right? Which is which is kind of weird because you would expect college students to be more open to, you know, to dig out the truth for themselves, but that's not really the case. So how do you explain them that just because there's inequality in the world, it doesn't necessarily mean that the system or, you know, things are necessarily unfair? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the first step is to point out to them that, you know, unless you're willing to give away half, you know, 90% of what you own, then you're not serious about inequality. It's easy Mm -hmm. to talk about it, but do something about it, which means, you know, be willing to give up most of what you have, you know, in order to even things out. And, you know, most people recognize, you know, um, can't do that <laughs> um, or won't do that. And, you know, get them to realize that here they are. Um, well, this is another example I use. If people are really serious about equality, then um, college admissions should be run as a lottery, which means everyone throws his or her name in a big hat. And Harvard gets to pick a name, and then Yale picks a name, and then Rhodes picks a name, and you go into all the so all the dis- students are distributed around colleges and universities entirely randomly. Mm-hmm. That would be an equal system. Mm-hmm. I have yet to have a student who said, "Yes, let's do that." Mm-hmm. Um, you see this all the time, so you know that helps you get the the discussion on a more serious level, you know. And that means sort of get back to what you were saying is what we need to do is look at what counts as an injustice. Um, You know, is someone harming another person? That's an injustice. That's what the law thinks an injustice is. It has to be someone harming somebody else. And it's hard to talk about. I'm not sure, I, I can't really even wrap my head around an idea that somehow there's a system out there that generates these inequalities and that that's an injustice. Because what there's so many factors that go into unequal outcomes. And a lot of those are choices. People make choices. A lot of it's the lottery, of just, you know, families, you know, that some kids, I was brought up in a family that my, both my mother and father were college educated. My father had a PhD. They both read huge advantage to me. I acknowledge that. Absolutely. I, you know, it kind of organized my sense of my future. And someone may be born in circumstances that are nowhere near that. Um, I would think we should have policies to reduce those differences as much as possible, but I would not call them an injustice. No one is harming another person. It's circumstances. And so we want to alleviate poverty. We want to do all sorts of things, you know, that, get at the roots of poverty. Um, but 
we're not doing it because there's an injustice. We're doing it because we think human beings ought to have a better shot at life, ought to have the choices in front of them that allow them to make dumb choices and better mm -hmm. choices. But, you know, put people in the circumstances as close as we can. And education is a crucial one. Family structure is a big one that affects people's life chances. And let's do what we can to improve those. But calling it an injustice just doesn't get us any close. You know, you got to get down to what causes this and that as much as we can understand it and try to fix those. But, you know, calling it all this sort of vague sort of sense of systemic or systematic systemic you know, racism that's, that's whatever oppression inequality yeah. that's what they say it just it moves us away from understanding the origins of problems and how we can solve them and make them better ameliorate the problems um uh you know it's and so i that's what i would want to focus on forget the justice question at mm -hmm. you know at, at that level, um, you know, and let's just go about thinking how to step by step, you know, this yeah. problem, that problem, that problem in a very methodical and practical way. If you call the whole system unjust, then there's only one way to fix it, and that's to get rid of the system, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, that's a revolution. I'm not big on revolutions. A lot of people die in revolutions. They often turn out very badly. Um, I would like, you know, that's why I'm a big fan of sort of prudence, you know, mm. do what you can. Aim at the good. You won't get there, but do the practical steps that get you as close to that good outcome as you want. Mm -hmm. so, 